You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. ESG has become established as a key business theme as companies and investors seek to navigate the climate crisis, energy transition, social megatrends, mounting regulatory attention, and pressure from other stakeholders. The rapidly evolving landscape has become inundated with acronyms, and we aim to break them down with industry experts. Welcome to ESG Currents, brought to you by Boomlerg Intelligence, your guide to navigating the evolving ESG space one acronym at a time. I'm Andy Stevenson, Senior ESG Climate Analyst, your host for today's episode. Today, we're talking about methane and the U.S. oil and gas industry with Debbie Gordon, Senior Principal at Rocky Mountain Institute, where she leads the Oil and Gas Solutions Initiative. Debbie is also responsible for the Oil Climate Index, which is used by the oil and gas industry to better understand their emissions, and the author of the book, No Standard Oil, which was released last year. We'll discuss why the U.S. oil and gas industry's CO2 footprint is four to five times larger than is reported by the EPA, and how the oil and gas sector could well be one of the largest, if not the largest, emitting sectors in the economy. Title of this episode is Houston, We Have a Math Problem. Thank you for joining us, Debbie. Pleasure to be here, Andy. Great. There's a lot to cover on today's podcast, including how and Debbie like to spend our perfect Sundays. But let's first talk about atmospheric chemistry. Debbie, what is methane? How is it different from CO2? And why is it a problem for the planet? It's, it's a great question. I wish everyone was asking it right now. Thank you. Um, methane is the simplest hydrocarbon. Hydrocarbons are compounds that have hydrogen and carbon. This one has one carbon molecule. It's the main ingredient in gas, and it's also a main ingredient in all light oils. So it really is kind of the carrier of a lot of the energy that comes from oil and gas. But unfortunately, when it leaks, it is 80, over 80 times more impactful than carbon dioxide in a 20-year period. Um, that is to say, if there was, if CO2 puts one blanket around the 
the, the earth in terms of warming, then methane would put over 80 blankets around the earth. So it's super warming and it's also relatively short lived, but it leaks in a, on an ongoing basis. So it, be, it, it remains an ongoing short term climate problem that's now looking like it's forcing some climate tipping. Thank you very much for that. So yes, uh, it's great to have a chemical engineer uh, that's uh, available to us to answer these questions. So the topic today is the oil and gas sector. Companies produce over uh, oil and gas in the United States from over 900,000 wells, some of them producing as little as just two barrels of oil a day. Uh, the companies also transport the oil and gas through pipelines and then refine it into a fuel before we use it in our cars, planes, plastics, what have you. Uh, which of these steps, uh, Debbie, are the most uh, worrisome with respect to methane? So this is a very complicated supply chain. I think we take for granted because things just appear for us. You know, you go to a gas station and there's gas. You go to buy clothes and that's made of natural gas. It's rayon. Um, you go to buy toothpaste and that's made of petrochemicals that also come from oil and gas. These things are just commodities that we're so used to using every day. The roads are paved with oil. Roofs are tarred with oil. Like this is in everything that we do. So this supply chain from extracting oil and gas all the way through to these end uses can have methane leak anywhere in that supply chain. These supply chains are global. <laughs> you know, oil and gas travel around the world. So we're talking vast distances. So leakage can happen of methane from wells, from pumps, from flares that burn off excess gas, from storage tanks, from pipelines, from compressors, even our stoves. And most recently, I found even my mother's gas dryer had a leak and <laughs> immediately had to call the gas company to shut it off. <laughs> so this very small under pressure molecule that has no odor for much of the supply chain and is invisible has to be extremely carefully controlled. You've done some analysis on this problem for Bloomberg Intelligence. Can you tell me what you have found? And on a scale of one to 10, how big of a problem is this? Sure, Debbie. So on a scale of one to 10, it's about a 9.5. It's actually one of the biggest problems that we are facing today in the US, uh, it, at least in the US. Uh, methane is not a problem everywhere in the world, but for big oil and gas producers like the US or Russia, for example, it, it can be a very, very big problem. Uh, the research that we've done here at Bloomberg Intelligence suggests that we are undercounting uh, the amount of methane that's coming from our oil and gas wells by a factor of five. And you wonder, well, how is that even possible? As I mentioned earlier, we have 900,000 oil and gas wells in the United States. Only about 7,800 are required to report their emissions to the government. So there's these, this kind of a threshold problem where the smaller players are not required to report, but those smaller players make up a huge amount of the emissions profile. So it's a, a significant amount of, you're only talking about reporting for about a third of production but that other two thirds of production packs a wallop when it comes to methane. And it actually drives up our methane uh, output from what we thought was uh, a, a small-ish number, but still a large number in the grand scheme of things, about 2 million tons a year to about 11 million tons a year. So it's really almost a factor of four or five uh, larger. And just to give you a sense of what that means uh, in the context of the, uh, US, uh, the United States, if you include all the CO2 as well as the methane from these smaller wells, you couple it together with all the other oil and gas 
uh, missions that we know about from the government, you end up with a number, if you're using uh, your number, Debbie, of 80 times the, the warming factor uh, for methane, uh, almost 2.2 gigatons of CO2, which would make it the largest emitting sector in the United States. So uh, the way it currently looks when you kind of rank order them, uh, the oil and gas sector is is uh, sort of number five or six, but when you add up all these different pieces that we're not counting, the number is uh, staggering. It becomes the biggest problem that we are facing from a climate perspective. It is twice as much as the benefits of all the renewables that we're putting into place uh, going forward out to 2030, including today. It's just on a scale that is uh, unfortunately uh, a, a very, very big problem and something we have to deal with uh, soon if we want to kind of solve this. So turning back to you, uh, it seems pretty clear that, uh, as I've described, Houston has something we can generously describe as a math problem, which is that they are only reporting a small sliver of the total emissions that they are actually uh, putting out into the atmosphere, as you mentioned, through methane. A lot of it's from these smaller wells very small wells, as I mentioned, just two barrels of oil a day in some cases. So incredibly small from a energy perspective, the, all of these smaller ones only make up about 1% of total production. So it's a very small number. How does your work at RMI, Oil and Gas Solutions Initiative, and the Oil Climate Index help us better understand this problem, not just in the US, but globally? Yeah, I'm really glad you raised globally because so much attention as the work that you're doing and really important work has focused on the U.S. I mean, we have continued to and have studied the Texas Permian Basin in West Texas a lot, but the reality is oil and gas are global commodities and they are produced everywhere and they're used everywhere and pipelines are everywhere. I mean, the 900,000 U.S. wells, multiples more when you consider the global situation. So what the Oil Climate Index plus gas does, this is a model that I've been working on for the last decade with partners at Stanford and the University of Calgary, um, now, it, now um, being released at RMI. It is a mass balance model. It's basically a model that, es that, that estimates how much emissions come from all the engineering operations to extract the oil and gas out of the ground, process it, move it, refine it, and then use it. So again, charting the whole life cycle. One of the big benefits is you can actually look into the life cycle and see where the greatest emissions arise. It's long been assumed that the bulk of the emissions come from end use from when I drive my car or when I put, you know, jet fuel in a plane. But the reality is some of these oils and gases have upstream emissions from the industry that are a factor of 10 different from other oils or gases. So you can extract one oil and it could be 10 times more climate intensive than another oil. And that matters because you're adding these up over huge volumes. And the idea is that if we can reduce those emissions intensities, we still can really make a now contribution to reducing climate change. We use operational data, reservoir data, how deep is the reservoir, what is the composition of the oil and gas, and we're using satellite data to give us to add in super emitters and other emissions that come from flaring into the oil climate index. So it's both calculations, it's simulations, in it's satellite empirical data that all go together in these peer-reviewed models that we've 
we've developed and continue to use and can also use to project emissions into the future. And that's why the oil and gas industry uses that index. They actually are, many of the more larger consultants trust that index. And the reason why we have you on the show here, uh, I am uh, what chemical engineers would think of uh, as uh, not, not an expert and you are an expert. So it's great to have you here to uh, break down how, this, how these emissions and how the different pieces of that process from getting it out of the ground, bringing it across the, sometimes across the planet, refining it and uh, then using it are, are treated from an emissions perspective. So turning to your great book from last year, Debbie, No Standard Oil, it is a great read. I encourage anyone to uh, pick it up. I learned a lot. Uh, can you tell me what that title means? You kind of already alluded to it, but let's uh, let's talk about it a little bit more. Yeah, it basically has a bit of a double meaning. I mean, Rockefeller, a hundred years ago, started this industry and he really marketed it at, on the back of it being a standard commodity. In the beginning, it was only to replace, oil was only really to replace um, whale oil for, for lamps. And then came the Model T. And so we added gasoline and then came World War One, and we added aircraft and then came jet travel and then came petrochemicals and plastics. So it really evolved to be a very complex industry. And in the book, I talk about the varying emissions that come out of these complex commodities that we just talked about with the OCI Plus. It charts the development of this tool, the OCI Plus, and then breaks it down. The book breaks it down into the different actors. So it takes a deep look at industry, a deep look at government, and a deep look at civil society and how we need to work better together in order to really address this industry. We've been trying for quite some time. I think that the underlying message of the book is that there are actionable cost-effective solutions to make the oil and gas that we use today as low emitting as possible so that we can significantly reduce climate impacts now while we transition. We're missing a lot of near-term action because we focus a lot on the future, but there's a lot we can do now by realizing equivalent barrels can have hugely varying emissions. Thank you very much for that. Yeah, there, in the United States, for example, I know there are a few oil and gas companies like EQT that have done uh, a significant amount of uh, reductions in their upstream emissions because they've basically put in new, new equipment and that new equipment doesn't leak. Uh, can you give me some examples of fields in the world that are kind of the lowest emissions and oil fields and gas fields? It doesn't matter if they're onshore or offshore. Yeah. So the very first cut, and this is how I started, my, my theory was, or my hypothesis in the beginning of this project a decade ago that created the oil climate index plus gas was that if the physical and chemical realities of these resources, I mean, you have bitumen in Canada, oil sands, it's nothing like the oil in Texas. And it's nothing like the oil that's coming out of some of the lightest fields in, say, Iran um, or Qatar. These are really different substances with very different types of hydrocarbons in them. So I thought, gosh, if these resources are so different, that probably means their climate impacts are very different. And it did bear fruit to think about that way because we found that heavy oils have a much more CO2 problem. So there's more carbon in heavy oils like the oil sands and the light oils and the gases, especially condensates and wet gases have a lot more methane. And so that has much more of a methane problem. So knowing what you're trying to control 
when you're managing these resources can really help mitigate their impacts. If you're trying to cut CO2 out of a dry gas, you're not going to get that much out of it. But if you're going to try to really cut methane out of a condensate, which is like a wet oil, then you really will have a lot of impact. So there's this, um, you know, the idea of you, if you can measure it, you can manage it. And that's where this whole enterprise started. Um, so you're in, in kind of uh, in line with this idea of this no standard oil. What about gas? If we turn turn our attention to the gas uh, world where we do methane is actually what you want, right? It is actually a waste. Unfortunately, it becomes uh, it's used as a, it's a waste product that's sometimes vented. But the uh, there's economic value to gas. That's what we use. That's our that's our core consumption of it is 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 the fuel itself that we're letting uh, escape into the atmosphere. Is it fair to say that there's also no standard Absolutely. gas? Absolutely, no standard gas. It rides right there along with oil. There's still this huge variance between a standard cubic foot of gas here and how it's managed and a standard cubic foot of gas there and how it's managed. So you get these huge opportunities when you differentiate oil and gas to actually use financial, you know, like, you know, pricing, methane fees, regulation. You can you there are a lot of tools. Once you have a differential market, I think of it like if I went to the grocery store and only could choose one cereal, there would be no market, right? But if you go right. to the grocery store and I go down the cereal aisle and I could choose from like 50 cereals, now what's the price? What am I going to buy? How much sugar is in it? You know, you start to really pay attention to the details. The same is true of oil and gas. There is not one oil, not one gas. All of the stuff we get from it comes from really varying resources. And now you can use varying tools to actually dial down emissions like methane. I have a question for you now. Andy, I think you might have something to add on this topic, given your recent research. What have you found? Yeah, so I, I looked at just the US, so this is not the world as Debbie is describing, but just the United States in terms of, uh, is there such thing as a standard gasoline, uh, a natural gas, excuse me. And the, you know, if you look at advertisements everywhere, you think of, sure, it must be, because they all it all looks like the same thing. Um, but in fact, it's very different. You know, so as I mentioned, and it's a very unusual dynamic where the bigger players, the big oil companies, are, are actually the best actors in this space. Uh, the smaller companies are, it's, you know, it's an expense and it's expense they're not willing to spend money on. So you end up with a very unbalanced market where the bigger players have oil that is, uh, or sorry, natural gas that is uh, roughly in line with what you've been sort of told is the emissions profile of natural gas. And the the bottom third is about twice that. So uh, you know, there's this idea that uh, is natural gas better than coal. Uh, for the top third guys, it is absolutely better from an emission standpoint, weld a wheel. Uh, but for the bottom third, it looks a lot like coal. You have to squint pretty hard to see the differential between that bottom tier uh, over this. This is over a 20 year horizon. But that bottom tier of oil or natural gas production. Uh, looks a lot like coal when you look at the emissions profile of it, and when that's including everything about coal. So that's pulling it out of the ground as well, including all the methane that's a, a, that accompanies that. So um, that's a problem, right? We think about it as being this sort of solution or a bridge fuel, and for a, a third of it, that that seems reasonable. Uh, for the bottom third of it, maybe not, right? So it's a it's definitely a problem that uh, I, I was sort of shocked to find in my research. And I'm 
not sure it's a very well understood problem. Um, okay, so let's uh, kind of drill down toward the end of this conversation about uh, solutions and what we think we should be doing to uh, help push along uh, governments and or companies to do better on this front, right? When no one likes waste, waste is bad. Efficiencies are always, uh, you know, celebrated by the marketplace, that's for sure. So uh, what can we do uh, in your mind, not just in the U.S., uh, but globally to, to get uh, more people uh, to focus on this and to drill down and make, you know, make these sort of, I would argue, very, very low cost investments relative to the amount of climate damage that they're doing. Yeah, it's, you know, this industry remains very 20th century. It really started up at the turn of the last century with Rockefeller, um, as I described, and there have been changes. Obviously, fracking was a huge change of operations. But in terms of how it's how it's fundamentally operated, the solution lies in in looking ahead into a 21st century. Oil and gas are extracted, processed, shipped on the backs of oil and gas. So we use diesel and natural gas to do everything in this enterprise. That is a huge mistake. First of all, these are commodities that should be way used in the highest value. And second of all, they're doing grave damage to the climate. So we can't afford to kind of use them willy nilly in ways that we could do very smart substitutions. So for the oil and gas that's not easily substituted by renewables, and there is a lot of oil and gas that can be substituted by electric vehicles, by renewables and power, but then we have certain things like petrochemicals or we have jet fuel. These are going to be harder to do wholesale substitutions on. We need to immediately run this industry on the backs of renewables. So if we actually electrify the oil and gas industry and use solar and wind, geothermal, electric you know, forms of inputs to extract the oil and gas, to pump the oil and gas, then we will already have made a huge dent in those emissions on the industrial side. We'll also be able to tie domestic renewable expansion in places with energy poverty, you know, in the global south, because you'll build out your electric infrastructure for domestic use, and then you can use that for industrial use. So these could be very impactful and also socially um, beneficial things to do. And then the second thing is absolutely, you've, the whole podcast has talked about this, this industry cannot operate with leaks. It must be a leak-free system. There's money to be made on not leaking. These are valuable commodities that can be sold. And we need satellites, we need better maintenance, we need better um, design of equipment. These these systems can just surely cannot leak. We've tolerated these leaks for way too long. Okay, Andy, I'm going to turn the last question over to you. Last word. This isn't a case of just bashing big oil. National oil and gas companies control about 80% of the global market. And there's a slew of small companies operating worldwide. I know you're looking at a lot of those in the U.S. as well. Big oil seems to be doing sometimes, you know, doing things right, but we need to durably cut oil and gas emissions, especially methane. How are we going to do this? Uh, thanks, Debbie. Yeah, so that's this is, as Debbie alluded to, a big problem globally as well as in the U.S. The, the big companies 
are really, I mean, uh, you know, they are trying now, which is something that I wouldn't say they were doing five years ago. So that's a huge Im improvement and it's not very expensive. I was mentioning EQT before, but uh, EQT spent uh, very little money to basically take their methane emissions to zero. So it worked out to be like less than $5 a ton in terms of the cost of doing that. Uh, if you think about uh, those kind of uh, emission reduction programs and, and uh, those, those kind of things, that's a pretty, pretty compelling uh, price point because it's uh, certainly well low, below what the market would give you for something like that. So I think it makes a lot of sense for these bigger players to be uh, continuing to address these problems in cost-effective manners, and the government is giving them certain incentives to do that. Um, the smaller pro the problem is really with this, I mean, obviously with the national, the, the uh, OPEC-type companies, and you have Venezuela that is just a uh, just a closet case in the in the uh, terms of the the amount of damages that they're doing from a from a methane emissions perspective, it's just like uh, just it's very hard to uh, wrap your head around. But it's just uh, from neglect more than anything else, right? So um, I would say that the the real push that we can have is to is to have these methane emissions cost people to put a price on these things and to actually force people to make an economic decision on whether it's worthwhile to be doing this, right? If you're producing two barrels a day of oil and gas and you're, uh, you're effectively polluting $100 a day of, of CO2, it may be not worthwhile to be doing this activity uh, in the United States. Maybe you need to be bought out or maybe the government needs to impose regulations to uh, make the, have people make this choice or make a better choice with respect to these smaller projects because they at the at the end of the day the economics aren't going to be driven by uh it's not going to make sense for these very small players who have to uh basically have nowhere to go with this gas or natural gas for example so it, it is a problem that is probably needs some kind of legislative fix as well as incentives from the marketplace to do this uh in in the right ways uh, but but it's something that we need to fix, and it's one of the easiest things for us to fix uh, in the United States, I would argue, because it is right in front of us, and it's a solvable problem. It's not, uh, you know, hydrogen is a great solution for someday, but not necessarily for today. This is a problem that we can address today, and I think that that's uh, how we might end it, if that's okay, Debbie. You have any final thoughts? Um, no, just that I remain quite optimistic that this is solvable. I think that making the invisible visible with satellites is really going to light up the sky on managing this methane. And I'm thrilled that Bloomberg is working on this. Well, thank you very much. We've really enjoyed having you. Uh, Debbie Gordon, once again, her book is No Standard Oil. Uh, you can find out more information on the oil and gas industry's climate impact by going to BI Carbon on the Bloomberg Terminal. If you have any ESG quandary or burning questions you would like to ask BI analysts, please send us an email at esgcurrents at bloomberg.net. Thank you very much. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.
What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.